0: In this week's show, our guest is Dr. Gerald Horn. He's the chair of African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's a frequent guest on the following radio shows, Democracy Now! and Connect the Dots, and is a contributor to the Political Affairs magazine. He's also a prolific author. His books include The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Cold War in a Hot Zone, The Deepest South, Black and Brown, Blows Against the Empire, and many more. There's been a lot of stuff going on in the in the community. The last show we did, we were talking about the election of, of the current president. We were talking about Black Lives Matter. Um, there's a lot of things on my mind and worries that I have, but um, there's something that I wanted to ask you. And, and from your knowledge of history, uh, there was a book that was written where it was connecting uh, police brutality to lynchings. And when I was doing research for our interview, I came across. Um, this idea where, um, some white folks would, um, go to an African American community or run into an African American on the street and provoke them, like say things or do things to them to get them to, um, to be upset. And then if the person uh, responds, then they would accuse them of attacking them or harm them in the process. Do you see any connection with that type of behavior, um, the police doing that, or even the white supremacists trying to pick fights with some of the protesters and then turning it around and blaming it on them being violent?
1: Well, certainly you see that with the police. Uh, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence pointing that direction. The most recent episode of Note involving the Seattle Seahawks professional football player, Michael Bennett, who was at the fight, in Las Vegas between Floyd Meriwether and Conor McGregor, and he recounted an episode with the police where the police seemed to be egging him on so that they would have an excuse to do mayhem to him. And so certainly there's a lot of anecdotal evidence pointing in that direction. Certainly with regard to lynching, we have a number of historical studies of lynching, and it's true that oftentimes there were attempts by the lynchers to provoke some sort of response from a black person to provide a further rationale for doing mayhem to that person. What's striking is the difference. That is to say that lynching was fundamentally an enterprise of private interests, individual citizens. Whereas what's happening today, it's an expression of how that violence has been outsourced, so to speak, to the state, (laughs) to the police forces. Uh, In other words, it's going in the opposite direction of how things usually go in this country, which is from the public sector to being privatized. Lynching and this kind of violence has gone from the private sector to the state.
0: It's all politicized and it's all been... You know, no matter what you say, they're going to flip it on you. So there was that instance of a a police officer um, telling a a white woman who wouldn't turn off her cell phone that um, why was she scared if they usually shoot black people? I don't know if he was trying to be funny or sarcastic or what, but does that just show how people don't even take seriously the the concerns of the African-American community when... They mentioned that black lives don't matter and that they're being unfairly targeted and attacked more than other groups.
1: Well, obviously, that case that you cite from the state of Georgia is quite disturbing. It's disturbing on so many levels. Uh, Let's assume that the officer was serious. Well, then it becomes extremely disturbing. And let's assume that the officer was joking. Well, why does a person authorized by the state to carry a gun and use it joke about killing black people? That might even be more disturbing. So it's a sign of the times. It's a reflection, as Charlottesville tends to suggest, of the fact that there has been no honest kind of accounting of the legacy of slavery in this country. There has been no honest accounting of the role that slavery played in the formation of the United States of America in 1776. And certainly there hasn't been an adequate discussion of the role of the U.S. Civil War and the fact that even though the Confederate States of America were defeated militarily, that they were not defeated politically politically. Insofar as the ideology of white supremacy and what used to be called Negrophobia did not liquidate or was not liquidated after 1865 when the Civil War ended. And there's still a grappling with that legacy. I mean, for example, I mentioned on MSNBC a few weeks ago. A statement that came as a surprise to too many in the United States, uh, which was that after the u s Civil War and slavery was abolished, the slave owners were not compensated unlike the slave owners in the british Caribbean, Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, and Tobago, etc and what that meant is that if you take someone 's property without compensating them then that is considered to be an outrage in this country. Oftentimes in my classes, when I illustrate this to, to a student, I'll take their smartphone or I'll take their laptop and ask them what their reaction is, certainly if I don't compensate them. And then it's made even worse in the sense that this property was human beings, uh, and therefore they were walking around neighborhoods in the eyes of the former slave owners acting impudent and insolent and cheeky about the whole matter, which tended to turbocharge their fury and outrage. And the fact that that basic fundamental aspect, which is that folks don't tend to realize that slave owners were not compensated when their property was taken, shows you how far we have to go. And let's not even talk about the fact that the enslaved were not compensated for their decades, if not centuries, of unpaid labor, which clearly handicapped themselves and their descendants, and we're still grappling with that poisonous legacy today as well.
0: What is your perspective on the the removal of monuments? Because uh, today there was an interview with Kay Whitehead uh, on NPR, and she was mentioning that there are some characters of of the American history that have a complicated past. At first they were slave owners, and then they... They became uh, advocates for slaves. And then you have people like David Crockett that he fought against uh, the Mexicans, but then he was uh, pro-Native Americans. So should it be a a blank taking away of all the monuments, or there should be a uh, scenario like each case taken uh, separately?
1: The United States has not dealt honestly with this history. There are hundreds of monuments to the Confederacy scattered across this country, not only in the South, but in areas that did not support the so-called confederate states of america as well there are military bases named after leaders of the confederate states of america now traditionally if you try to overthrow a government and you lose you're not honored with a monument which is precisely what happened between 1861 and 1865 and i think what that points to is the fact that the leaders of the confederate states of america thought that they were walking in the footsteps of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson when they sought to secede from the United States like George Washington seceded from the British Empire over the question of slavery, which is what I argued in my book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776. I think that we shouldn't just stop with the slave owners. Uh, there has been a controversy about Christopher Columbus and his role in the late 1490s in helping to ignite the slave trade by enslaving native americans as a matter of fact there's a new historiography developing discussing the fact that there was mass enslavement of of native america oftentimes what would happen is that the native americans of massachusetts for example would be enslaved and then deported in mass to a place like jamaica and vice versa Uh, you might know also that a number of statutes of christopher columbus have been defaced of late and I don't see this movement any ending anytime soon. I really do think that we need an honest accounting. And that's, that's basically what's missing. And that's why you've had this explosion since Charlottesville, because there's all this pent-up anger and resentment. And in many ways, what happened in the United States was a kind of so-called racial integration, not unlike, say, trying to integrate Capitol Hill, U.S. Congress, Where there is a deficit in women's restrooms, and yet you elect more women to Congress, but you don't add more women's restrooms. You just say women integrate into the status quo and stand in line to use the bathroom. Well, that's the kind of integration we've had in the United States of America. You basically told uh, people who are not defined as white to suck it up and accept this U.S. status quo that honors slave owners and honors slavery. And that was not an honest approach. And I think that many will be paying the price for that fundamentally dishonest approach for decades to come.
0: What would you say to people who see it the other way around, that uh, integration was forced on states and people that weren't ready
1: for it or willing to consider? I would say thank goodness. (laughs) Thank goodness. I mean, look, let's be clear. Uh, As I've stressed in my own writing... There were certainly mass uprisings against the idea of desegregation, be it in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957, Oxford, Mississippi at the University of Mississippi in 1963, Boston, Massachusetts over busing in the 1970s, Yonkers, New York over housing desegregation in the 1980s and the 1990s. So, assuredly, there was mass so-called white resentment against the idea of desegregation. But I think we need to unpack that. The lesson I draw from that is that the reason why that took place in the face of this stiff opposition was because of international pressure. And one of the reasons why you have not had as much desegregation or you've had a stiffening of opposition to desegregation in recent years is because of a slackening of international pressure. I mean, I think that just because the European minority in apartheid South Africa, many of them might have been opposed to Africans voting, I don't think that's a good reason for saying Africans can't vote. <laughs> I mean, and so likewise, uh, just because you have mass white opposition to the idea of desegregation, to me, that's not an argument for opposing desegregation. That's an argument for education. It's an argument ultimately for thrusting it down their throats and letting them choke on it
0: they consider it as as imposing on the majority population. And when you see these white supremacists walking down the street and saying they will not replace us, they even had people who weren't Caucasian on their side with this kind of bravado of feeling um, dismissed or whatever. um, Do you think that, um, I know that they're reacting to the changing demographics, but... uh, But what do you do with with people like that? Like, um, they, they, they hide on their freedom of speech. How do you combat that type of mentality?
1: Well, there are all sorts of approaches. I mean, there's education, of course. But ultimately, I think that it's probably a mistake to think that education alone will cause people to change their opinions there are changing laws as well that's what happened in the 1960s with the 1964 civil rights act the voting rights act of 1965 but obviously that didn't work very well because after 1964 you saw a mass defection of the population defined as white in the south defecting from the democratic party which was given the, quote, blame, unquote, for the Civil Rights Act, they defected en masse to the Republican Party, where they continued to reside in 2017. But, as I said, I'm not sure if we should accede to the tyranny of the majority, the despotism of the majority, and I think that's really at the heart of the issue. Uh, That is to say, they're changing demographics. I mean, look at California, for example. Uh, California now does not have a so-called white majority. And now California is the place where the Republican Party comes to die. I think that if you understand California, you'll understand this mass opposition to immigrants, particularly immigrants from Latin America, because it's difficult to maintain white supremacy if you don't have a so-called white majority. That's why, as we speak, Donald J. Trump is facing a backlash from his base, Because supposedly he's moving to extend some kind of positive treatment to the so-called dreamers. That is to say the 800,000, mostly from Latin America, who were brought to this country as youth through no fault or decision of their own and have grown up as U.S. citizens but are now in a kind of immigration status limbo. The base is up in arms about this because one of the reasons Donald J. Trump got elected was precisely because of his opposition to immigration from Latin America, it's interesting about the immigration debate in the United States of America. If, if you dig deep in the U.S. press, you may be able to find story about thousands of immigrants from Ireland and Poland in Chicago and in the U.S. Northeast were not documented, but that doesn't seem to cause as much outrage and fury as people from south of the border and the fact that. That kind of juxtaposition is not a staple of the U.S. press bespeaks why we're having so much so much angst and anxiety about the question of immigration.
0: But is it a normal reaction to any group of people to have a fear of the other?
1: Well, just what, what, what about my example about Poles and, and Irish? I mean, you know, they're, they're you know, I mean, some of these people don't even speak English. There doesn't seem to be any anger about them.
0: Well, they say that um, every generation, they come after one migrant group, and now is, is the, the Latinos, but um, I, I find issues with that.
1: Well, I, I think that, I think that's a misreading of history. I mean, it is true that in the 1850s, there was a mass anti-Irish Catholic party, the Know-Nothing Party, K-N-O-W. It is true that the second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan about 100 years ago was not only anti-black, but anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish. But I think it's a misreading of history to downplay the fact that there is a specific racial antagonism against people from Latin America, in particular Mexico more specifically, on a racist basis. Just as, once again, if you juxtapose the point that there doesn't seem to be much as much outrage and fury about undocumented migrants from eastern and western europe do you think that um i've talked
0: about this on the show that the different approaches to change people's hearts and minds you know there's the pacifist approach and then there's the self-defense approach that martin luther king and malcolm x would debate about do you think that what happened in charlottesville brought to the forefront both approaches because you had majority of pacifists protesting the white supremacists alt-right and the kkk and then you had a small group of of anarchists who were willing to confront them no matter which approach they took they ended up coming out as as victors as being victimized by the the supremacists do you think that um that that might be able to change the mind the hearts and minds of a lot of people just like with mlk like people seeing it in the news, people being attacked, people actually wake up and, and do something about it?
1: Well, it's interesting. I guess you're re- referring to Antifa, which has been battered and attacked again by the U.S. president, calling them, quote, bad dudes, unquote, referring to their activism in Charlottesville in August 2017. I find it striking that, the intellectual Cornell West, who was in Charlottesville at the time of the unrest, said that without Antifa, he and those who were protesting against the Klan and the Nazis would have been crushed like cockroaches. That was more or less a quote from him. So it's difficult for me to, first of all, take the position of Donald J. Trump, drawing a moral equivalence between the Klan and those who were protesting the Klan. And certainly in terms of the fact that you have a mass ultra-right movement in the United States of America, I think that to defeat this movement, it will take more than one approach. I think that it will take the approach of nonviolent protests. It'll take the approach of litigation, lawsuits. It will take the approach of education. And yes, it will probably take the approach of confrontation. In order to squash this looming specter of fascism,
0: what happened between the the 1960s and now that there was room for for this type of uh, rhetoric and uh, movement to rise? Is it that that after certain litigation and certain rights were given, that, that people became uh, like complacent and that we didn't really move forward in, in changing people's hearts and and in educating people about every, the value of every human life, or is it the institutions and the government not being proactive and just uh, kind of putting a Band-Aid on the situation and, and
1: not moving forward? Well, I think it's all of the above, but I'd like to reiterate what I said a few moments ago. You recall that I believe it was at the 1992 Democratic Party convention that then-governor of Texas, Ann Richards, the last non-Republican governor of Texas in the past two or three decades, as I recall, spoke of the GOP nominee, George H.W. Bush, that he was born on third base and he thought he hit a triple. That's a baseball saying, by the way. In other words, Mr. Bush did not recognize what kind of advantages that he had that propelled him forward. And likewise, I think that the United States Oftentimes, historians make the mistake of acting like progress, such as beating back the terrible agony of Jim Crow, comes solely and exclusively from domestic forces, when actually it took an international movement. And so what happened of late to cause the forces of Jim Crow to revive is that that fundamental lesson was lost. Uh, That is to say that building global alliances against bigotry, that that was not seen as an essential component of an anti-racist movement in this country uh there's been a fundamental misunderstanding i believe of the foundation of the united states of america that is to say seeing it in, as some sort of great leap forward for humanity when actually it was a great leap forward for slave owners like george washington and so because of that fundamental misreading and misunderstanding it's understandable why you keep having a resurgence of these ultra-right forces and i dare say that if we're not careful it will not only be a resurgence It will be something worse.
0: It's easy to dismiss any activism on the side of of progressive politics or
1: equality for all, because people... No, 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 no. no. I I said all of the above. I tip my hat to education, to litigation, to nonviolent protests... And then I brought up the international situation. You act like I'm just talking about the international situation. Maybe I should throw the question back at you. Why are you trying to downplay and ignore the international situation?
0: No, no, no. What what I was trying to, to convey is that um, when you hear mainstream Americans or the majority population, they get very emotional and very upset at anybody defying the status quo. So, you know, there's been a current uh, report that, you know, Kid Rock uh, – did a whole spiel about how he he feels that people are dis- disrespecting the national anthem by kneeling. That people even bringing up that Black Lives Matter is it's like a non sequitur. And so so you have people who are very patriotic and kind of close-minded and, and like simple-minded, and they start dismissing these very serious things. And we're talking about the lives of of many people, and they start saying, "Well, if you don't," it's pretty much the USA, like it or leave it mentality. They start with that, and then they dismiss anybody who has a, a different perspective. Is that, is that part of the, the American shallowness that, that kind of pervades our, our culture, or, or is there a way to, to address that?
1: Oh, clearly, clearly. I mean, and, and, and that's nothing new. I mean, you know, it, it probably was worse in 1957 when you had the attempt to desegregate Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, when the government was seeking to defy, uh, the government of Arkansas was seeking to defy court orders, and President Eisenhower had to send federal troops in to the classrooms to keep black youth from being mauled by their classmates. And one of the reasons why President Eisenhower was forced to act was that the United States was in the midst of a cold war with the Soviet Union It was trying to charge Moscow with human rights violations. At the same time, the United States was trying to legitimize and countenance apartheid on these shores. That was too much of a contradiction. And so President Eisenhower had to federalize the National Guard in Arkansas and send troops into the classrooms. That's the kind of international pressure that led to this major victory over the forces of segregation. But now, in 2017, and for various reasons, people are not thinking globally, even though they complain about globalization all the time for some reason. And so, therefore, there's been a lessening of pressure, and therefore, like mushrooms after a spring rain, you've had the sprouting of these ultra-rightists, these neo-Nazis and Klansmen, as Arkansas, excuse me, as Charlottesville, Virginia tended to demonstrate.
0: I know you mentioned education, you mentioned um, the global uh, responses, but um, America has has been setting the pace on a lot of these things in the past, and now it's moving backwards. What can the populace do to challenge the leadership and, and to keep it accountable? And you know, other than voting or trying to uh, find somebody else to be in the leadership position, uh, do you think that maybe the, the apathy of um, the other party has also... Um, brought about some of these issues?
1: Well, one of the problems we have in this country is that there is a deficit in terms of organizing, a deficit in terms of organizing tenants. I mean, for example, uh, as you know, I teach at the University of Houston, and in light of the Harvey storm and hurricane, you have thousands of homeless people, which has caused many landlords to find loopholes in leases of their tenants and expelling tenants because they feel they can get a, a higher rent from people, many of whom are affluent, who are now homeless. Now, be, be in part because of Texas law, and in part because you don't have tenants' unions of any magnitude or strength in Houston, they're able to get away with that. I mean, likewise, one of the reasons why wages are stagnating in this country is because of a deficit. In terms of labor organizing, unions are notoriously weak in the United States of America, notoriously weak in particular in Dixie. And as long as that's the case, you're going to have a working class and poor population that not only tends to get steamrolled, but also tends to fall victim to some of this snake oil called racism that is misleading them. So, I mean, I think there are many reasons for the present plight of so many in this country, but deficit in organizing is certainly a primary cause.
0: Well, last question. Do you see young people uh, actually taking a, a stand and, and working together to bring about a, a solution? Because a lot of times it seems like the protesting and the, and the rhetoric can only go so far that you have to use the, the system that is in place and people had a lot of hopes with the Obama administration and then some of that was, was kind of mixed um, results. Do you think that, that there's not that appeal to, to get people mobilized from the Democratic Party to actually bring about change, that people were very um, kind of disgusted with the, the political system and that's why um, the other side came out and voted more than than the, the progressives?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think there, I mean, certainly I think we need more youth activism. Certainly there was disappointment with the Obama administration in many circles, but I think that Hillary Rodham Clinton in her new book, What Happened, has a point when she points to resentment and anxieties in the population that's defined as white, as a reason why you've had the election of Mr. Donald J. Trump, who gives aid and comfort to neo-Nazis and Klansmen, not only in the immediate aftermath of the tragic events of August 2017, but as recently as today, September 14, 2017. So I think that until that particular nettle is grasped grasped we're going to continue to have difficulties that is to say acknowledging and trying to meet head-on the hydra-headed monster that is white supremacy and ra- racism
0: well thank you so much i i hope um that um things get better and and we don't have to call you back on the show but um I'm really concerned about uh, the way things are heading, and uh, we would like to hear your expert opinion in the near future.
1: Well, thank you for calling.